thank you for this opportunity to contribute. In response to your call for papers on applied phenomenology and as a practitioner, I would like to outline a pilot intervention, a series of workshops to support university students with self-reported anxiety. The intervention is an early draft response to the question, what would therapies look like if they were based on emerging and active models of cognition and affectivity? If patterns of affectivity are part and parcel of perception, action and thinking, and hence affect, cognition and sensory motor contingencies are inseparable, could perception and action be useful entry points to promote therapeutic change? Prevailing models of psychological therapy lean heavily on cognition and often have a didactic tone. How can we provide opportunities for individuals to become aware of themselves as richly expressive, active agents of the organisation of their experience? I offer this here today as the intervention demonstrates a potentially potent role for phenomenological methods to realise the therapeutic application of these models. Through facilitated group experiences, individuals can be scaffolded to develop embodied relational awareness, a dual awareness of both the object and lived bodies in ways that support agency over affectivity. So I'll begin with the context and motivation for this work and the theory and clinical experience that underpins it, bridging psychotherapy and somatic traditions. And taking advantage of this being a recorded submission, we can take a look at a couple of moments of an exemplar session. I'll then draw out key themes and implications for further work in this area. But up front, I'd like to acknowledge the support and contributions of my academic colleagues to translate this clinical practice into academic thinking and with our pilot research project. Also, my clinical supervisors and trainers and my collaborators in the project we called Calm to the Core. I'm a psychotherapist and head of a university counselling service. Students here are high achieving and academic. Demand increases year on year, which we might attribute to increased help seeking as well as levels of distress. But as a university service, we're not funded to provide treatment per se. Waiting lists for individual therapy in the NHS here can be six to nine months. And with about one in 10 students seeking support in each academic year, we need effective, accessible, short-term interventions. Now, anxiety is the most prevalent presenting issue in university settings and for all adults in primary care. 20 years ago, stress would be much more commonly reported and the word stress coming from physics and engineering implies a stressor, external forces. As the concept of anxiety grew in prevalence, the language also shifted over time from I feel anxious to I have anxiety. This medicalisation of diagnosis and treatment merits attention, but it is beyond scope today. Within scope is the way that students are making a kind of sense of a range of experiences and labelling them as anxiety. Now, certainly for some, it has the quality of a chronic fear response, but it can also be uncertainty in the face of novelty and transition, the overstimulation of communal living and 24-7 digital media, 
It might be excitement or sometimes frustration at not being able to access all imagined possibilities. And for a rare few, the states may be related to excessive caffeine and other substances. But in all cases, what we have are bodies and minds in states of hyperarousal in ways that limit social and sometimes cognitive functioning. And my concern is that it's labelled, possibly prematurely, in this rather sort of disembodied and passive manner. I have anxiety. It's happening sort of here to me. As if it's a state of the object body over which they have no agency. And for many, they experience a series of I can't, physical, social, academic. There's a kind of loss of agency in life activities and narrowing of possibilities. This is at odds with two fields of understanding. That of emotion in my psychotherapy training, where affectivity is conceived as the organisation of experience, and the emerging models of cognition and affectivity, such as those offered by contemporary phenomenologists, as well as those defending 4E accounts. I see a convergence between these approaches. We may not use the same words, but the experience of the self in integrative psychotherapy has long been conceived as embodied, embedded and inactive. But across all traditions, in essence, psychotherapy addresses the ways in which the organisation of our experience out of awareness is causing distress. When it works, a process of largely verbal inquiry helps us to understand our limited or inhibited range of relational responses to the world, and in so doing it expands our relational possibilities with ourselves and with others. Now a shift to including the body more in psychotherapy has been largely led by an increased focus on chronic developmental trauma, but some therapists, for example Gestalt, have a longer heritage of attention to the phenomenological experience of the body. The challenge is that these individual psychotherapies can be resource intensive. They're not widely available to young people in publicly funded or HE settings. Short term psychological therapies, usually based on cognitive behavioural approaches, take a didactic tone. So once labelled as an anxiety presentation, individuals are taught how to manage the thoughts and behaviours that accompany a fear response. CBT may offer short-term reassurance or sometimes relief, but the relapse rates after short-term CBT are relatively high. So we wanted to develop an intervention that might support the agency of participants, develop their sense of resourcefulness. We wanted to give them a flavour of how they create and sustain their experience, and to do this by staying close to the experience, without engaging too much with the labels or the stories behind their distress. This is both to avoid medicalisation, but also too much self-disclosure in groups, which is often not welcomed in small college communities. So when calm to the core, we developed and conducted a pilot research project, which is a series of workshops facilitated by movement and psychological therapy practitioners. They use movement and breath to pay systematic attention to the experience of anxiety and explore agency over that, to investigate the relationship between the body and the environment through experiments and share these with the group, and then to connect the experience of the body in the physical world with the body 
in the social world. So let me give you some examples. For many, anxious states are accompanied by rapid breathing and feeling unable to influence it can lead to escalating states of panic. In one of our exercises, we ask participants to count their breaths and to notice how they feel in their bodies before and after a short episode of exhaling through a straw. Straw breathing lengthens the period of exhalation, which is usually sustained after students have removed the straw. For some, their breathing rate may have halved. We invite them to call out the changes. Many report feeling heavier, calmer, softer, more relaxed with the slower breathing rate. But this may not be the case for all, and this is crucial. Every body is different. So we inquire, how does this feel for you in your body? And over the course, we'll offer many different breathing exercises. In this way, we're both respecting subjectivity and building self-agency. This psoas release exercise is a favourite. So the psoas is this muscle that connects the lumbar spine with the femurs. It's a deep core muscle connecting through fascia to the diaphragm. And it's crucial for walking and helps stabilise during sitting. The psoas contracts in a startle response when the body's experiencing stress. So through clinical experience, I'm aware of how individuals in anxious states typically feel as if unsupported. In their bodies, there's often a pulling back from the physical world of support into a tense self-support. So there's a quality of internal tension, a reluctance to yield and give oneself over to the physical or social world for support. So drawing on the physicality of the object body and knowledge from somatic practices, and again in the spirit of experiment, we invite participants to notice how it feels to stand on the ground, their feet, legs, breathing. They then stand on a block or a couple of textbooks, swing the leg a few inches with not too much effort for a minute or two, and then return to standing and draw attention to the feeling in the two sides of the body. And we invite call outs on this. And in a longer exercise, we'd repeat and we'd notice the overall difference. So do have a go at this. Typical call outs here might be that the leg that was swinging feels more solid or rooted on the ground, that the floor there feels stronger. Tension is eased through their body and through that link to the diaphragm, often breathing has lengthened too. So what I love about this is it demonstrates how the organisation of our physical body impacts how we experience or indeed create or curate the physical world. Another example plays with visual perception. We invite participants to walk around the room, narrowing first the visual focus and then switching to their peripheral vision. Again, we facilitate their attention to the impact of perception on the felt sense of the body their breathing, weightedness or connection with the floor, how confidently they move, shifts in affectivity. Without using Gibson's concept of affordances explicitly, this is implicitly what we're sharing with our participants. We're seeing if we can broaden the range of affordances through a shift in perception and action. Are there new possibilities available? We're using the word experiment here as drawing attention to the before and after is really helpful 
as in all perception we notice through contrast. And whilst I have a strong commitment to the phenomenological experience, we do use explanation after the felt sense. Medical illustrations or verbal explanations lend cognitive support. So what are the key themes to emerge from this pilot work? Well, we began with the idea that perception and action could be points of entry for therapeutic change. By perception here, we're clearly focusing on embodied awareness, where this is a broader definition than the previously narrow definition of interoception, such as the ability to notice one's own heartbeat, to a wider definition that now includes kinesthesia, the feel of the moving body. But it's crucially also relational. The body is always in relationship to the material world. Gravity is at work. We're always in relation to the floor, the chair, the air that we breathe. We move in 3D, we're drawn towards and pull back. I think it's through our attention to the body moving and the body relating that we can most clearly see how we participate in the shaping of experience and meaning. So back now to that clinical observation of this relatively disembodied report. I think there is a need for this client group, but probably for most of us, to feel the body more clearly. Now, there may be many influences on why we don't feel the body. Beginning, first of all, with preferences. I think innately, children differ with the extent to which they enjoy their kinesthesia. And here we have a quote from a participant, um, perhaps revealing many of our more bookworm tendencies. Aside from preferences or addition to preferences, we have the environment that we grew up in. But also life events. There may be good reasons why we've tuned out of the felt sense of the body in response to episodes of trauma or pain. And then calls on our attention. I'm interested in how technology may be contributing to relative disembodiment, the lure of the screen and spending less time moving. So I would argue that to feel the body more clearly, we need scaffolding. And I'm aware of the use of this term in the extended mind papers, uh, Sterelny and taken up by Colin Betty and Kruger, to denote the engineering of the environment to scaffold cognitive and affective experience. But here I'm using the term in two ways. Firstly, there's the interpersonal scaffolding. So this is the idea originating from Vygotsky, used in the models of psychotherapy I trained in, but also used heavily in education. What the child can do with the mother today, they can do on their own tomorrow. It describes a handing over of tools, here the tools to more fully experience an embodied phenomenon. So it's a kind of resourcing, indeed an opening to a wider landscape of affordances. Winnicott, the child psychoanalyst, famously said, there's no such thing as a baby, emphasising how the baby comes to an understanding of themselves through the dyad of the caregiver and baby. And this was co-opted by Susie Orbach, British psychoanalyst, to assert there's no such thing as a body. The sense of our bodies is also a creation of the interpersonal the caregiving diet initially, but then out to the broader socio-political influences on our embodied sense of self. So there's a clear role for the other in helping us to feel ourselves, the attunement of the caregiver, friend, partner or yoga teacher. Participants in these kinds of programs, I think, need the other in three ways. 
there's the facilitator guiding experience, hopefully broadening that range of affordances through attention to the contrast, but also the others in the group by giving voice to the experience and sharing that. They're creating and handing over a kind of language. Um, and this, I think, then sets up the possibility for both points of similarity and differentiation. But it's not just interpersonal, back to the extended mind view, it is also environmental. We are involving the material world and we're inviting a metaphorical link. Can you draw on the support of the floor? And here one of our participants very beautifully describes how she had made the link between the physical and social worlds. So I hope by now it's clear that the awareness I'm trying to develop in this project is both the living felt body and the object body. Um, and this is uh, an approach emphasized in an active accounts. The physical body really matters. The way that we hold our bodies, uh, the muscle memory, our habits, it all uh, contributes to the affordances, uh, the possibilities available to us. And I'm aware that in some places there can be a privileging of the absent body. So the idea that in states of flow or expertise, the felt sense of the body falls away and body awareness can be conceived as interruptive. But here we're exploring the potential for the body itself to become a trusted resource. And to do that, what we need is a healthy relationship with the object body. Now in anxious states, attention is often drawn outside and there can be a preoccupation with the less positive elements of the object body, consciousness of body image, size and shape, performance. Today's body is often instrumental or something to be treated. And we see the shadow side of this in very high levels of deliberate self-harm in the student population. So in programmes like this, we're trying to foster a position of wonder, respect and curiosity towards their body. These experiences, releasing the psoas muscle, breathing differently, these experiments can create for some wow moments of respect and interest. But of course, to feel an embodied experience, we need to feel safe, and especially so when we're looking at the experience of anxiety. Why would you connect to a source of distress without the resource to regulate it? Awareness and agency are mutually dependent. So where does this leave us? Well, come to the core is no panacea for young adult anxiety, but it is demonstrating something I think important and interesting. The intervention was acceptable to the group and it led to meaningful shifts in embodied awareness and the capacity to manage anxious states. So whilst I'll always value the rich sense making that we play with so effectively in integrative psychotherapies, the cognitive bias in predominant short-term models needs to be redressed. Our bodies are imperfectly construed, but I hope I've demonstrated here that phenomenological methods via the scaffolding of embodied relational awareness of both the object and lived bodies um, have got a potentially potent role to support agency over these chronic states of distress. We need to hand over the tools for individuals to experience themselves as active creators of their experience. The technology of how we achieve this 
is work in progress, especially in short-term interventions. But along the way, I think it will be of value to resurrect group methodologies. And there could be a role here for proactive interventions, perhaps a shift in parenting, pre and primary school cultures. I wonder with our lifestyles and educational culture in the 2020s, how our children are welcomed and supported into a fully embodied experience. Now, the original motivation for this project around anxiety, I think, continues to raise interesting questions. What are the implications of the attribution of dysregulated states to anxiety by our young adults? And in the ecology of the university, how are we complicit, potentially, in the medicalization and reification of a diagnosis like anxiety? So from October, I'll be conducting research here at Durham into the phenomenon of anxiety. With the support of my colleagues here and building on the previous project led by Matthew Radcliffe on experiences of depression, I will explore how this cohort conceptualise and experience anxious states and how their experience is impacted by both a verbal and a physically experienced phenomenological approach. So I welcome contact with any of you with research interests in this domain. Thank you again to my academic and clinical collaborators and also to the yoga, somatics and martial art teachers who through richly facilitating my own embodied awareness have contributed so significantly to this work. Thank you for your attention.